O God, by whom the meek are guided in judgment, and light riseth up in darkness for the godly, grant us in all our doubts and uncertainties the grace to ask what Thou wouldst have us to do, that the spirit of wisdom may save us from all false choices, and that in Thy light we may see light, and in Thy straight path may not stumble, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, welcome. Nice crowd here today. Glad... Happy to see you all. Uh, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, we are in Acts. All right, well, welcome back. We're delighted to have you here today. We are in Acts chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 26. We're going to finish that up today. Um, but I want to go ahead and read through it again because uh, it's a very important section of the book of Acts. And I introduce what some might regard as a somewhat controversial subject last week. And so um, before we continue on with it, I felt that we probably need to go back, reread the section, and then pick up where we left off. So Acts chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. And when he had parted from them and set sail, he, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we're staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he could not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. 
Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in obedience or observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, the offering presented for each one of them. Last week when we began talking about this section of the book of Acts, I titled it, When a Good Man Falls. And I said that some years ago, the pastor at Moody's famous, at Chicago's famous Moody Church, Erwin Lutzer, wrote a book by that title, When a Good Man Falls. And in that book, as you might probably gather from the title, he tells the story of any number of biblical heroes who at one point or another in their life and in their ministry sinned, fell from grace, so to speak, and yet how God used them nevertheless. Um, in that book, he chronicles the life of Moses. You all know the story of Moses. God had chosen Moses to be the instrument by which he would deliver his people from their captivity in Egypt. Uh, Moses took it upon himself to start the ball rolling when he killed an Egyptian. In, in contrast to what God had actually told him to do, and the result was what? Well, he had to flee and live in the wilderness for 40 years, sort of set things back a bit. Then there was Samson. We all know the story of Samson. Samson was the judge. He was a great leader. He was a hero of the people, but he was a man who fell under the beguiling spell of a woman and gave up the secret to his strength and had his locks shorn and the result was, of course, that he too fell from grace. Story of David. David was a man after God's own heart, Israel's greatest king until Jesus arrived on the scene. A man who was dear to the Lord, but a man who likewise, like Samson, fell under the spell of a woman, Bathsheba, and as a result had an adulterous relationship with her, and then in an attempt to cover it up, had her husband Uriah killed had committed adultery, and then, to top it all off, covered it up with murder. Then there was Peter. Peter, who confessed the Lord at Caesarea Philippi. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. But then the same Peter who would go on, later on, to deny Jesus three times, once to a little girl, even calling down a curse on his head. And then he asked the question, well, what about Paul? Now, Erwin Lutzer didn't actually mention Paul in his book, he mentioned these others. He didn't mention Paul. But I suggested to you last week that Acts chapter 21 tells a story that a point in Paul's life where I think Paul, although he was a good man, may have fallen, may have been so willful in terms of what he wanted to do that he actually acted in contrast or contrary to God's will for his life. Now, I said, when you make that kind of an accusation, that's a very serious accusation, given the fact that Paul was a great apostle and probably next to the Lord Jesus Christ did more than anybody else to advance the cause of the gospel. So you've got to be able to back that kind of accusation up with some evidence. And I put some of that evidence before you last week. We said that on several separate occasions in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul was warned not to go to Jerusalem. This is where he wanted to go. This was part of his missionary strategy. We said that Paul had been collecting money 
from the Gentile churches, what was known as the Jerusalem Fund. He was taking this to Jerusalem. He wanted to give it to the leaders of the church, James and others there, and this would be a sign of Gentile and Jewish reconciliation. So this was part of Paul's great missionary strategy, and it was a wonderful thing. Paul had seen how the dividing walls of hostility, that's the way he describes them in Ephesians, those dividing walls of hostility had come down at the church in Antioch in chapter 13. And Paul had a desire to see that happen on a much grander scale, across the board, in the whole church. And so he had been collecting this fund, and he was determined to get to Jerusalem and present it. And yet we're told on several occasions Paul was warned in Acts chapter 20, verse 23, in Acts chapter 21, in Acts chapter 21, verses 7 through 12, that he was not to go to Jerusalem. And we said what's so powerful about all three of these warnings was that it wasn't just Paul's friends or his followers that were urging him not to go. We're told he was told by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaking through various people not to go to Jerusalem. The most powerful one, the most dramatic one of these, of course, was this prophet Agabus. We're told that when they arrived at Caesarea, at Caesarea Maritima, for those of you who are wondering, when they arrived at Caesarea, we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied, and while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. In other words, this wasn't Agabus speaking. We're told he was a prophet. He was speaking through the Holy Spirit, and he made it very clear that Paul was not to go to Jerusalem. And then we read this in verse 12. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So on three separate occasions, we have an account where Paul had been warned not to go to Jerusalem. And yet, what happened? Well, Paul went anyway. Now, we said there are a number of things that we can say in Paul's defense. We said on the one hand, this was perhaps just the work of a very obstinate and willful individual. And I think it's safe to say that Paul was a very willful, obstinate, and stubborn person. Now, I pointed out last week, when we hear those words, we hear those adjectives, willful, stubborn, obstinate, that's very negative. But I also pointed out to you that it was going to take more than Casper Milktoast to convert the Roman Empire of the first century. It was going to take a willful, stubborn, obstinate individual in order to make that happen. I think that's the whole reason why God chose Paul. You remember at the time of his conversion, when he sent Ananias to lay hands on Paul, that Paul might receive his sight. Ananias said, I'm not going. I know all about this man. And do you remember what the Lord said to Ananias? He said, you go. Paul is my chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. I think God knew full well the kind of person he had created in Paul and all of the life experiences that Paul had and the zeal that Paul had and the obstinacy of Paul, and he knew that was precisely what was going to be needed in difficult times, and that's why he chose Paul. So I think we can say, in Paul's defense, if he was going to Jerusalem because he was obstinate, because he was stubborn, well, that's the kind of character that was necessary in order to change the world. Second thing we can say in Paul's defense about this was that Paul had a great love for his own people. He tells us in the epistle to the Romans that if it would save his people, he would be willing to be cut off from Christ for eternity. 
Now, there are very few of us who would be willing to say that. For the sake of his countrymen, Paul makes this very clear. You can read about it there in Romans chapter 9. Paul says, I would be willing to be cut off from Christ forever if that meant the salvation of my own countrymen. So it's very clear Paul had great compassion for the Jews, for his own people, and that's one of the reasons why he'd been collecting this fund. We also said that Paul had this great missionary strategy, and part of that missionary strategy was to unite the Jewish and Gentile sections of the church. There was a great deal of acrimony between those two parts, and certainly Paul wanted to see those, as I said, dividing walls of hostility come tumbling down. And he mentions the Jerusalem Fund here in the book of Acts, but also in his two letters to the Corinthians. In fact, if you read through 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul is so adamant about collecting money that he almost orders the people to give the money. I've never met a clergyman who's so bold as to order his congregants to give money. I'm certainly not that brave. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that people will be generous, but to order them to do it? And even in the book of Acts, the fact that Luke rarely mentions this suggests to us that maybe even Luke felt that Paul was coming on a little strong at times. Paul could be forceful. And the fourth thing that we can say in Paul's defense was that Paul was certainly willing to go and to suffer for Christ. Uh, in the section that we just read, Paul says, why are you breaking my hearts? I am willing to go and I'm willing to suffer and uh, even to die for the sake of of Christ. And Paul certainly was willing to do that. We see on any number of occasions that he had endured hardships. He had been publicly beaten. He had been in and out of jail. Any number of things had happened to Paul. He'd been publicly flogged. All sorts of terrible things. And he no doubt bore the marks of this suffering on his body at this very moment. There's no doubt about the fact Paul was willing to give his life for the sake of Jesus Christ who had given his life for Paul. But, having said all of that in Paul's defense, I asked the question, was that the point? Maybe Paul was willing to go up to Jerusalem. Maybe he was willing to suffer and to die. But that wasn't the question. The question was, did God want him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer and to die? And as I read the text, there are any number of indicators that suggest to us that is not what God wanted Paul to do. Now, last week, as I was leaving, somebody came up to me and challenged me on this. And they said, yes, but if you go back a chapter earlier to Acts chapter 20, Paul makes it very clear that he was going to Jerusalem because he was constrained by the Holy Spirit. So, if you're in Acts chapter 21, turn back a page to Acts chapter 20 and look at verse 22. And this is Paul speaking. And he says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by what? By the Spirit. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But, and here it is, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul seems to indicate in Acts chapter 20 that the reason he's going to Jerusalem is because he is constrained by the Spirit. That means he was under a compulsion, 
a divine compulsion. So you, you might say to yourself, well, there's a little bit of ambiguity here. He's been warned three times in the Holy Spirit not to go to Jerusalem, and yet he tells us here in Acts chapter 20 that he was constrained by the Holy Spirit. So which is it? Well, it may be that when Paul says he was constrained by the Spirit, I realize it's capitalized here in our English version, but you'll notice in the same sentence he mentions the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit, you'll notice that the word holy is absent from the first reference to the Spirit. So some commentators have suggested that this was Paul's internal spirit. He was determined in and of himself to go to Jerusalem, having been warned by the Holy Spirit that imprisonment and afflictions awaited him. At any rate, I'm willing to concede you won't find this happening very often, but nevertheless, I am willing to concede that there is a certain degree of ambiguity. But I still hold to the view that Paul made a mistake here. And it's not purely on the basis of the fact that he had been warned three times by the Holy Spirit not to go. It's on the basis of what happened to Paul once he got to Jerusalem. Because when he got to Jerusalem, he found himself in a very compromising position. So compromising, in fact, that Paul almost brought disrepute not only on his whole ministry, but on the gospel that he had proclaimed. Now, I say almost, and we'll see why it was an almost and not quite. But nevertheless, um, while there's ambiguity about this passage to some degree, there's no ambiguity about what ultimately happened to Paul when he got to Jerusalem. What happened when he got to Jerusalem? Well, it's not hard to figure it out. Um, we read that Paul got there to Jerusalem, verse 17. Uh, he went up and met with James and the elders. James, of course, was uh, the leader of the church there in Jerusalem. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. That is, they gave thanks. But then they went on to say this, and you sort of have to read between the lines. You have to put yourself in a first century context. The church in Jerusalem was a poor church. It was a beleaguered church. As I said, these early believers, these early Christians still regarded themselves as Jews, but by this point they were under pressure from the Romans. They were also under pressure from their fellow Jews who were beginning to regard them as not being Jews because they were the followers Christ. And so they were under great pressure. And so when they see Paul, and they hear all the things that Paul has done, and how the church is growing in all of these Gentile cities, you can almost sense that they're getting a little bit jealous. And they turn around and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Now, many commentators regard that as a little bit of hyperbole, a little bit of exaggeration. How many thousands of Jews believe? Actually, in Jerusalem, there was just a handful of people. As I said, this was very small. Now, there may have been more Jews of the diaspora and other places, but pretty much there in Jerusalem, it was not a large church. And they say, all of these Jews are zealous for the law. Now, that's important. They're zealous for the law. 
And they have been told that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Now that certainly wasn't true. Paul had been telling the Gentiles that they were to keep the law, but when he said keep the law, what he meant was the law of God, not the ceremonial law. They were freed from the ceremonial law. And Paul's ministry, for the most part, had been among the Gentiles. Now, it's true, when he went into a place, he reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue from the Scriptures. That much is true. But Paul hadn't been telling anyone to forsake the law of Moses. That was an exaggeration. At any rate, that's what they said. And they said, this presents us with a problem, Paul. We don't know what to do. We, we understand you're doing great things out there among the Gentiles, but you... And this is where it gets very insidious. They said, but Paul, you're making our job very difficult. <laughs> you're out there preaching this message of grace and mercy and pardon and that people need not uh, be loyal to the ceremonial law. And that's making our job here among the Jews very difficult. And Paul, we know that you've come here for the whole purpose to reconcile the church. So, so we know that this is not intentional, but it is a serious problem, Paul. And, and the big question is, what are we going to do about this? And Paul must have thought, well, I, I, I did not intend to make your jobs difficult. And they said, well, don't worry about it. We've got a plan. And, and, and here's what we want you to do. You can read it for yourself. What then is to be done? Verse 22. They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. Here's our plan, Paul. We, we, we can resolve this problem very simply. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses, expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with them that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Verse 26 is the critical verse. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. The phrase to underline here is the offering. What was the offering? Well, it's not an offering in the same sense that you and I think of an offering. When we think of an offering on Sunday, what do we think of? Money. We're going to take up an offering. When they were talking about an offering here, it was not an offering of money. It was a sacrifice. That's what was being expected. They were going to make a vow, have their heads shaved as a, fact that they, as a sign that they had taken this vow, and then after the days of purification had been accomplished, they and Paul were to go up to the temple and make an offering, a sacrifice. A sacrifice for what? According to the Jewish law, a sacrifice for sin. A sacrifice for sin. They would take up a lamb or a goat or a pigeon or whatever it was. The way this worked in the Old Testament was that you would bring your animal, you would lay your hand on the head of the animal, symbolizing the fact that you were 
transferring symbolically your sin to this animal. It was receiving your guilt. And then the priest, as you had your hand on the head of that animal, would take a knife and slit the animal's throat, and its blood would be poured out. And this symbolized the fact that sin was such a grievous offense against God that it was punishable by death. For the wages of sin is death. But God was willing, in His mercy, to accept the sacrifice of an animal so that human beings could go free. But of course, these sacrifices had to be made over and over and over again. Why? Because an animal life is not the same as a human life. So at best, these sacrifices merely covered the sin, it didn't take them away. This is why John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus on the banks of the Jordan River, shouts out, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus was the Lamb of God. His sacrifice upon the cross was, Tell me if you've ever heard these words before. A pure, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice. Full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice. Oblation and satisfaction. What? For the sins of the whole world. Once offered, never to be offered again. Now that is the message that Paul had preached throughout the Gentile world. This is what that whole first church council had been about. When they said, now, Christian, Gentiles want to become Christians, they have to first become Jews, don't they? They have to have their children circumcised. They have to be obedient to the law of Moses. Not just the moral law, but the ceremonial law. And Paul had said no. In fact, on one occasion, he said, I stood up to Peter and confronted him to his face on this issue. And now, all of a sudden, here he is in Jerusalem, ready to go up to the temple and offer an animal as a sacrifice for sin. Was that not a repudiation of everything that Paul had said up to this point? Of course it was. And that's why I say Paul, in my opinion, was not walking in accordance with the will of God. I think this is the reason why the Holy Spirit had warned him on three separate occasions not to go to Jerusalem, because if he did go to Jerusalem, he would find himself in a compromising position. Do you know how the Bible tells us we are to deal with temptation? We're to flee it, that's right. We're not supposed to muscle through. We're not supposed to sort of grin and bear it, be strong. We are told to flee temptation. Why? Because the one who is the tempter is more powerful than we are. The Bible describes this as the evil day. What's the evil day? The evil day is when our desires and the opportunity meet. You've heard me say this many times before. There are those moments in our life when we have a desire to sin, but we just don't have the opportunity. Doggone it. Then there are those other times when we have the opportunity to sin, and I just don't really have the desire. The evil day is when the desire and the opportunity meet. And that's why we're told when God says, don't do this, it's because he knows that we are weak and we may find ourselves in a compromising position. And that is exactly where Paul found himself. He was so desirous of uniting these two different branches of the church that he was willing to compromise, maybe just on this particular moment. I'll just compromise this once just to sort of satisfy these people, you see. But it was a compromise of the gospel. It was a compromise 
of the gospel. Well, what happened? Well, Paul may have been willing to be compromised, but God wasn't. God wasn't. Now take your Bibles and look at verse 27 and following. And when the seven days were almost completed, the seven days, what, what's the significance of the seven days? It was at the end of the seventh day that they would have to go up and make the offering. So Paul had already gone through the rite of purification. They shaved their heads, but they hadn't made the offering yet. That was the final thing that you did. After the seven days of purification, you went up to do the offering. Look at how this verse says it. When the seven days were almost completed, almost, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Incidentally, those are precisely the same words that they had used for Jesus. Away with him, crucify him. And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying. I think this is a wonderful section. Here is Paul willing to compromise the gospel. Now, I think he was doing it from what he regarded as the best motives. He wanted to see reconciliation. He had a heart for his people. He didn't want to be offensive. Most of us don't want to be offensive. We really don't, do we? I mean, when I preach a message, even if it's a hard message, it is not my intention to be offensive. I don't want to offend anybody. I gotta live with you people. The last thing I want to do is offend you. Paul didn't want to offend them. And I think on this occasion, in a moment of weakness, and we have to remember Paul was a human being. We have this tendency to think of Paul as this giant of the faith, this courageous man, and he was, but he was also flesh and blood. And I think on this moment, he put himself in a very precarious position, and he was willing to be compromised, but God was not willing to have Paul compromised. He was not 
willing to allow the gospel to fall into disrepute. Why? Because the gospel was even more precious to God than it was to Paul. The gospel of grace and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ was far more precious to God than it even was to Paul. And that's where I think you see God intervening. God let Paul go just so far, but not the whole way. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will oftentimes find that to be true in your own life. There will be times when you are willing to be compromised. There are times when you may even be willing to compromise what you believe, but you will discover before you go the whole way, God intervenes. And sometimes when he does, it can be painful. Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. In Psalm 23, we say, the Lord is my shepherd. Did you ever notice that a shepherd carries a crook? Did you ever notice that the bishop is the chief shepherd of the diocese, carries a shepherd's crook, a crozier? What's, why does the shepherd have that crook? That's exactly right. It's to fend off danger, but it's also to pull those wayward sheep back in line. And sheep are stupid animals. They really are. And this is one of the things I learned when I went to the Holy Land the first time. We were sitting at a restaurant, and there was a shepherd in, in a field right next to us. Um, and he was there with his flock, and he had sheep and he had goats. And it's really interesting to watch the difference between them. You know, we, we talk about goats being stubborn animals as well. Let me tell you something. Goats are intelligent creatures. Sheep may be more attractive, but they're stupid. They really are. If you, you, you notice that a goat, when it eats, pulls up a tuft of grass and holds its head up while it chews and looks all around to make sure there's no danger. A sheep never lifts up its head. It just eats the tuft of grass and moves on to the next tuft of grass and on to the next one and the next one and before long it has wandered far afield of the flock unless the shepherd does what? Takes him with the crook and yanks him back in the line. I have a friend whose sister is a professional trainer of corgi dogs. And I mean, she's, she's the big deal. What, what, what's the big... Um, Dog show, the, yes, the Westminster dog show. Well, she's at that every year. And uh, he said he went to watch her one time as she was training these corgi dogs. And uh, they were going around in a circle, and they're all in line, and there was one that just kept pulling itself out, would just go and do its own thing, and she would push it back in line, and it would pull its way. And he said she took it by the scruff of the neck, and she pulled it up, and she held it right in front of her. And she just held it there, and he said that dog was squirming, and it was choking and its eyes began to pop out and its tongue was hanging out to the left and she put it back down and immediately went back in line. And my friend said, Sal, my gosh, you almost killed that dog. And she said, that was the general idea. <laughs> Sometimes God has got to do that for us, doesn't he? So that we can what? Be pleasing to our master. And I think that's exactly what happened with Paul here. 
God took Paul by the scruff of the neck. Paul had been willful and obstinate, and on some occasions that had been beneficial. On this occasion, it was not. And he was in danger of compromising the gospel, and so God let him go so far before he took him by the scruff of the neck. And you might say, well, he almost killed that Paul. That was the general idea. Almost. Almost. This far, but no further. Well, we're going to go on to see what happened to Paul at this point. But I just want to say one thing here. You might think, well, that was the end of Paul. But as you can clearly see, it's not the end of the book of Acts. Um, Paul, at this point, is going to be arrested by the Romans. There'll be a plot to have him assassinated by his fellow Jews. They'll evacuate him, because he's a Roman citizen, to Caesarea Maritima. Those of you who've been to the Holy Land, you've been to Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea. This was the headquarters of the Roman garrison. Uh, the Romans had soldiers in Jerusalem at all times. During the festivals, remember Paul had gone up to Jerusalem for the festival, there would be a large body of Roman troops that would come down from the capital. The provincial capital was at Caesarea Maritima. They would come down to Jerusalem, and they would be quartered at what was known as the Antonia Fortress, right there, right near the temple complex. So if there was any trouble, the Roman cohort could come out. The troops could come out and put down whatever rebellion or difficulty or trouble there was. Paul would be taken from Jerusalem up to Caesarea Maritima, and he would languish there in prison for two years. No longer free, no longer unfettered to go out and preach the gospel. There would be consequences for his action. And then, at that point, he would appeal to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. And then he would be transported to Rome, where as far as we know, he's in prison for several years more. So as a result of his sin, there were consequences for Paul. I want you to understand, when we sin, there are consequences. Even if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, but that doesn't mean that he takes away all the consequences. David confessed his sins about Bathsheba and about the killing of Uriah when he was confronted by the prophet. And we're told that he was still a man after God's own heart. Psalm 51 is David's great confession of sin, and it is magnificent. If you're ever struggling with sin in your life and you're looking for a great confession of sin, read Psalm 51. My goodness, it is a heartfelt cry to God for mercy. In my mother's womb, I was a sinner. But that didn't mean that God just said, okay, don't worry about it, David. Everything's going to be fine from here on out. David's family life, if you read the rest of the story, was completely fractured. His children rebelled against him. His marriage was never the same. Life was difficult from that point on. He didn't lose his throne, but life was not easy from that point forward. And life is not going to be easy for Paul from this point forward. But what God does do, while he doesn't always take away the temporal consequences, he takes away the eternal consequences. And he can still restore us, and he can still use us. This didn't mean because Paul fell from grace on this particular occasion, Paul was of no more use to God. He would be imprisoned. 
But at the very beginning, Jesus had said to his disciples, and you will bear witness to me before kings and governors. And as a result of Paul's imprisonment, he did bear witness before kings and governors, between, before two Roman governors, before a Jewish king, and ultimately, we're told, he would bear witness before the emperor Caesar himself. And by his chains, guarded by the Praetorian Guard, the bodyguard for the imperial house itself, Paul would preach the gospel to his captors. And we're told that the gospel would spread through the entire Praetorian Guard, and even members of the royal household would come to know the gospel. So you see, God is in the business of redemption, my friends. Romans 8.28, for we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So God can redeem the situation. It didn't mean that life was going to be easy for Paul. It didn't mean God was going to simply wipe away the consequences. But what it does mean is that God redeems those consequences. And Paul was restored and got back on the right track. And we could see this was true for all the rest. It's true for Moses, wasn't it? Moses did kill that Egyptian, but God didn't say, well, done with Moses now. He messed up. I'm going to have to move on to somebody else. No. He brought Moses back, and he used him. The same thing was true for Samson. You know the story of Samson. He did lose his strength, but eventually he got his strength back. He was blinded, as you all know. He was imprisoned by the Philistines in that great temple. But how does the story of Samson end? He pushes out those pillars and brings that temple down and killed more of the Philistines in his death than he ever did during his life. Think about Jonah. Jonah, who had been told to go to Nineveh and preach a message of repentance. And Jonah said, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't particularly like those Ninevites. You know, like Charlestonians, I want you to go up and preach the gospel to Columbia. I don't want to go to Columbia. I don't much like those people up there in Columbia. That was Jonah. I don't want to go to Nineveh. Forget it. I don't like the Ninevites. Whatever God's going to bring on them, bring it on. They deserve it. But God had another plan for Jonah, and what was the result of his disobedience? He got thrown overboard, swallowed by a great fish, left there in the belly of this beast for three days and three nights, and then he repents. He turns around. We're told that the great fish spit him out. And where do you think he landed? And Nineveh. It'd been so much easier if he'd just done what he'd been told to do, but he ended up in Nineveh. Same thing for David. David was still restored, still a man after God's own heart, still Israel's greatest king. What about Peter? Those of you who've been to the Holy Land, you've been to the place where Peter denied Christ, right outside the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. I do not know the man. I do not know the man. I swear to God, I do not know the man. And then after the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Then feed my sheep. He who had denied the Lord three times was restored three times and went on to become the great apostle. I want you to know when you sin, when you fall, when you are outside the will of God, that doesn't mean he's finished with you doesn't mean that there won't be consequences for your action. 
But we must never forget that the God we Christians worship is a God whose property is what? It is a God whose property is to have mercy? Always to have mercy. Listen, listen to those words of the prayer book. They're beautiful words. They're powerful words. Don't let them just be rote. Listen to them. He is the God whose property is always to have mercy. And we see that with Paul here. We see that throughout Scripture. It's all about redemption. There is plenteous redemption, we're told, in the blood that has been shed. For Moses, for Samson, for Jonah, for David, for Peter, for Paul, and for you and for me. Which brings us then to this next section. The temporal consequences for Paul. What happened to him as a result? Well, we've already read some of it. We're told that a great riot broke out as a consequence. We're told that Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, verse 27, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. It's interesting that Luke says they were Jews from Asia. Now, this would have been the Roman province of Asia. The headquarters, or the capital, I should say, of the Roman province of Asia was what city? Ephesus. Ephesus. Now, where had Paul been for two years? Longer than any place else? In Ephesus. Presumably, these were Jews not just from Asia, but from Ephesus. Now you say, well, Paul preached there. He, he had a great ministry there. Yes, but there was still opposition in Ephesus. You recall that there had been that riot, remember? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Well, if you go back and read those earlier chapters in the book of Acts, we're told that that riot was started by Jews in Ephesus. And the other reason why we know that these were Jews, not only from Asia, but probably from Ephesus, is because there is a mention here of Trophimus the Ephesian. Verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So presumably these were Jews that had come from Asia, probably down from Ephesus, and their argument was this Paul was out there teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law, the law of Moses, and this place. And moreover, they said, he's brought Gentiles, we've seen him with a Gentile, into the temple confines. Now, was that a false assumption or was that a false accusation? It may be both. Some of them may have assumed that because they saw Paul with Trophimus, who was a Gentile, that he had taken the Gentiles into the temple courts. Now, if you know anything about the temple, Second Temple Judaism, if you know anything about the temple in Jerusalem at this point in history, you know that the temple sits on the top of the mountain, and it was surrounded by a whole series of courts. There was an inner court, was the court of the priests. That's only where the priests could go. And even within that was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go, and he could only go once a year on the Day of Atonement. So you had that, that inner court, the Holy of Holies, then you had the court of the priests, 
Then you went out and down a few stairs, and below that was the court of Israel. And that was as far as the Jewish men could go. Then you went out through a gate and down several more stairs, and you came to the court of women. That was as far as the Jewish women could go. They couldn't go into the court of Israel, the court of the men. They couldn't go into the court of the priests, etc. That was as far as the women could go. Then you went down several stairs through several gates, the whole way to the bottom, and there you had the court of the Gentiles. And that was as far as the Gentiles could go. In fact, there were signs posted all around that stated that trespassers would be not prosecuted, but executed. Gentiles were not permitted to go into the temple confines. When Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple, we're told, it was out of the court of the Gentiles. So this is where all of this is taking place, the court of the Gentiles. And we're told that they had seen Paul take Trophimus into the temple. That is to say, beyond the court of the Gentiles, into the court of the women, up to the court of Israel which was a violation of the Jewish law, punishable by death. Now, I say that may have been a false assumption. They may have assumed, since they saw Paul going up to the temple with these other men having their heads shaved, prepared to make the offering, and having seen Paul earlier in the week with Trophimus, they may have just put two and two together and assumed that Paul had taken him up into the temple confines. But it may not be as innocent as an assumption it may have actually been a false accusation. And we know that these people were not above that sort of thing. Isn't that exactly what they did to the Lord Jesus Christ when they dragged him before Pontius Pilate? I find no fault with this man. He has not broken any Roman laws that I can tell. This man claims to be a king, and he have no king but Caesar. Furthermore, this man says that he will take this temple and tear it down and three days later raise it again. Now, were those... Was that true? Well, Jesus had said that sort of thing, but of course what they were doing were twisting his words. They were taking it out of context. That's exactly what these people were doing here, accusing Paul falsely. I think it's ironic, because if Paul was trying to do anything, he was trying to do the opposite, to the point of compromising, to the point of denying his conscience. But it didn't matter. The people ran upon him. It was like a mob. They attacked Paul. And we're told that the Romans had to come out and rescue him. I want to draw your attention to the name of the Roman commander here in verse 26. His name was Claudius Lysias. Now, what's significant about that? Well, Claudius was a Roman name. He probably named himself after the emperor Claudius. But Lysias was a Greek name. It was a Greek name. So this man is probably a Greek. He's an officer in the Roman army. We're told that when this mob broke out, immediately somebody went and told the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, and he called out the entire cohort. We're told that at least two centurions came. A centurion commanded 100 men. So at least 200 Roman soldiers come pouring out of the Antonia Fortress into this crowd, trying to break it up, and eventually they forcibly make their way to the Apostle Paul. And they don't know what's going on. 
Some people are shouting one thing, some people are shouting another, but one thing is very clear, they want this man dead. Away with him, away with him. And as I said, they don't mean just get him out of here, they mean rid us of him, get him off the face of the earth, kill him. And Claudius Lysias was a wise man. He didn't know what to do, so he seized Paul with the intention of taking him into the barracks and evaluating him, interrogating him, finding out what this was all about. But as they're going in, Paul speaks to him. Now, the people there in Jerusalem were shouting in Aramaic. But Paul, we're told, turned to Claudius Lysias. He must have heard the name Lysias at some point. And we're told that he spoke to him in perfect Greek. Can I say something to the crowd? At which point, Claudius Lysias turns around and says, are you Greek? I thought you were that Egyptian who'd caused so much trouble in Jerusalem before and you let all those people out in, a, in an uprising and we had to put down the uprising and then you fled. I thought that's who you were. But you speak Greek. And not only you speak Greek, you, you speak good Greek. You speak Greek well. What is this all about? And he suddenly realized that Paul was a cultured man, an educated man, a capable man. And that's when he says, okay, yes, you, you can say something to the crowd. And that's where we'll pick up the narrative next week. When Paul has an opportunity to say something to the crowd, he gives a defense. The Greek word here is a really interesting word. It's apologia. It means an apology but it really means a defense. Paul gives a defense for his actions. And uh, we're going to take a look at what that defense was. It contained a number of elements, a number of factors, and I think you'll find them fascinating. So that will be next week when we get back together again. We've got three minutes, a rare thing. But I don't want to start the next section yet. So questions, questions, please. Yes.